Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on the podcast, I interview the best minds on the planet in all the areas of your life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, we believe you deserve success in all areas of your life and not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experiences. This year, we'll be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. The goal of these experiences are to get you out of your day-to-day and to put you into experiences that will ignite your soul. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if we are a good fit for each other. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Fun is as important as accomplishment. Fun is in itself an accomplishment and recognizing that and allowing myself to just really create space for it. I've found that belonging for me means being who I authentically am with everybody. And that requires vulnerability, which is scary because I've spent most of my life putting up the guards and the walls to keep people from seeing the real me. And just allowing that to come down is where real connection has happened. It was such a powerful time in my life. I might think back on that, that that was the time where I felt like I owned my power for the first time when I stepped in front of him. What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Allison Lombatis. So Allison created a hugely successful brand called Get Your Pretty On. She was a mom who spent way too much time in yoga pants and she knew, she knew I got to get my pretty on. I got to feel good. I want to feel good and I want to help women feel good. So she put together the most ingenious freaking concept I've ever heard of, which is basically her capsule and outfit formula. Now, I'm a guy, so I'm probably getting all of that wrong in exactly what it is that she does, but she'll be on the show in a minute to explain it to you. The idea is genius, but the reason why I wanted to have her on the show obviously is to talk about the work hard part about her life because she's an incredibly successful entrepreneur um, in many, many, many different areas outside of uh, just Get Your Pretty On, which she's known for. But what we did was we went and we got vulnerable with each other about our past, about our um, parents who, you know, uh, they were they were well-meaning people, but, you know, let's be honest, they weren't uh, the greatest in a few areas. And we have a lot of similarities when it comes to parents that were alcoholics. Um, she had an alcoholic dad. I had an alcoholic dad. Um, I had some physical abuse. Uh, and we, we did a deep dive into those areas, not for the purposes of just talking about it, but for the purposes of People who find themselves in these situations themselves and they want to get better, they want to challenge these limiting beliefs that were, you know, sort of like just handed to them just by default and doing the work to get over it. So I want to let this episode speak for itself. I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of her. And I think there's a lot here from an entrepreneurial standpoint. And um, there's a lot here from a, hey, look, this is, 
you know, these are the challenges I had and this is what I'm doing to, uh, to get better and to grow from it. Without further ado, here is the episode with Allison Lombatis of Get Your Pretty On. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot believe it. We have the opportunity now to be together. We were in Los Angeles last week or two weeks ago. I booked the podcast. I thought we were going to do it over the internet, but as the uh, the podcast gods worked out and we're able to be together. Yes, here I am on your doorstep. <laughs> on my doorstep having coffee. So <laughs> I'm super excited for you to be here. We're going to break the show up into uh, a couple of categories. First, we're going to talk about the science of achievement and the things that you do to get you pretty on. And everybody's going to understand what that means in a bit. Then we're going to move along to the art of fulfillment and maybe some things that you do or have recognized that you want to do outside of business. And then we're going to do some rapid fire questions, um, random questions about your life. It'll be fun. Sounds awesome. All right. So I want to turn the clock back to the 1970s in Hopewell, Pennsylvania. (laughs) So from an early age, if I did my research right, you wanted to do some acting and you did commercials before the world got to see you in your bathroom. (laughs) That's true. And you were a little bit on the shy side, right? Yes. So I was a painfully shy child and teenager. So I never really actually pursued things uh, as a child. And I played around a little bit with musicals when I was in high school, but that was about as brave as I could get with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't really pursue acting professionally until I moved to Dallas. And I was in my mm, probably late 20s, early 30s by that point. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I initially signed up for acting classes was because I wanted to be more confident in business. I was working in corporate America at the time, and I felt like that was a way that I could kind of get out of my shell. Do you remember the first time you did the first acting piece? Yeah, I remember my first audition. Oh my gosh. It was for it was for an infomercial uh-huh. and we were trying nail polish on. And I was with two other girls and we had to just kind of talk about the nail polish and how great our nails looked. And it was just so... It was so phony and so over the top. Uh, I did not book that, but um, looking back, I don't regret not booking it at all. Uh, But I definitely remember that one. And then I think my first commercial that I actually booked was for Hasbro. Mm -hmm. And I was a mom in their electronic monopoly commercial. (laughs) Okay. So I have to ask you some some self-interested acting questions. So... I went to the High School of Performing Arts, okay? Uh, You know, the fame school in New York, but I never did acting. I was not interested uh, in doing it at all. Most people think that I did, but I didn't Mm. because I was terrified of it. When I think about what it takes to get into, like I'm really, really good at being myself, Mm -hmm. but I'm terrible about being somebody else. And I know when I talk to actors, sometimes it's the reverse. It's like they're more comfortable stepping into a character than they are stepping into their own life. Was that the case for you or? 
Yes, 100%. So I'm an introvert naturally and I'm shy and being on camera, being, you know, on stage, I really, really love stage performance. That's, that was my jam. That's what I'm still, even though I don't act professionally anymore, I would absolutely love to do theater again. Uh, but I love the character development and being somebody else. And I think that that's a lot easier sometimes for introverts or people that are shy is to just step into this other character and this other world of being mm -hmm. rather than being yourself. And I struggle now being on camera as me, Allison, doing, you know, lives and showing up on social media and those types of things are a lot harder. So yeah, definitely. I'm kind of the reverse of where you were with that for sure. I saw Al Pacino a couple of years ago being interviewed by, I think it was like Larry King or something. He was promoting something. And he's one of my favorite actors. You know, that whole Goodfellas, like Al Pacino, like that, you know, Martin Scorsese kind of vibe. Like I love them because they're so, I grew up in New York and, you know, like I'm so, like when I see somebody who gets that New York Italian thing right, I'm like, okay, now, now, I, now, I, now I know he's a great actor because he like stepped right into it. But when I saw the interview, I'm looking at him and he's painfully awkward, mm -hmm. like not making eye contact, head down. Um, you know, Larry King's asking him questions and he's like, well, you know, yeah, but, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, this guy's struggling. But then I see him on screen. He's a completely different, thoughtful, deep. And I guess, I, I guess the question is for me, when I'm, if I think about having to act in front of somebody, it feels that there's like this inauthenticity, like I'm faking it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm becoming somebody that I'm not and I don't like faking it, even though I know that that's what the job is. Mm -hmm. And so I've never, ever been able to do it. In fact, to your point, when we talk about uh, shooting videos, whenever I'm trying to, if there's a product that I have and I'm trying to sell it, I can't sell it mm -hmm. because I'm trying to do it. And I, I, so anyway, I was just wondering if there was like the reverse issue for you. And it sounds like there was. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think the difficult thing about acting is that you're playing a different character, but you're accessing your experiences and emotions a lot of time to make that authenticity happen. Mm -hmm. And that's a difficult thing to do, to be able to be playing somebody else, yet doing it from the perspective of, accessing your own emotion to allow that performance to truly be authentic. But I'm right with you with the selling stuff. Like it, the minute I feel like I have to switch into that mode, I really have to access an emotion for me that is truly genuine about the product or I can't sell it. Oh, I see what you mean now. So when you're, when you're acting, if there's a storyline or a character or whatever that you're stepping into, you can tap into a part of that and sell it mm -hmm. because you are embodying it. But when you're selling soap or Monopoly, if you're not connected to it, there's no place to go other than faux selling. Right. Ah, interesting. Yes. All right. So you and I had the pleasure of chatting uh, when you were here uh, in Los Angeles last at uh, our mutual friend, uh, Chris Harder's Mastermind, and you got his cup there with your coffee. <laughs> <clears throat> and we both discovered that we had parents that were not shall we say the greatest at raising children. <laughs> and I think both of our dads were truck drivers that drank. Did, did I remember that correctly? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So when you sort of like, 
you know, go back to that time in your life. Maybe you can kind of give me, I don't know, a snapshot from like looking back on it now, like what was it like for you? So for me, just to give you kind of like putting it through a lens here, for me, it was like, you know, my dad would get up at like four or five in the morning and he would, you know, work until... I don't know, two or three in the afternoon in New York, you know, there was a bar in every corner. So he went to the bar at two or three. And when I got home from school, you know, if I had a question on my homework, this is like very good fellas, funny, but if I had questions on my homework, I had to go to the bar and literally get homework from him and his drunk friends at the bar. Mm. And then when he got bad enough, uh, drunk enough at the end of that time, he'd come home and then there'd be physical abuse. And that was like, that was like my world until I got old enough to be able to sort of like take that back and say, that's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. What was like that period of your life like? So my dad was actually, he didn't start truck driving until later on in my life. So um, there wasn't really an overlap there with me being home and him doing that. Um, But he did work. He worked in a factory every day and he would go into work in the mornings and then come home and either fall asleep on the couch immediately or if it was, you know, the weekends and he would come home and drink pretty heavily. I think that the things that I remember the most about my childhood related to that were the times that he would get really angry when he would drink and he had a lot of abuse growing up too. So he would um, get violent at times. Sometimes he was suicidal. He would um, sometimes threaten not only to kill himself, but the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, this didn't happen every night, but it would happen maybe six months, you know, every six months or so. So I felt like we were always just kind of on pins and needles waiting like, when is the next time that this is going to happen? Was this next episode going to happen? And I just remember times when he would get drunk and maybe pass out on the couch at night and I would lie in bed, you know, waiting for him to come to bed because I knew the state of mind that he was in, that he was, you know, angry or upset and drunk and worried that he was going to get a gun out and do something. And I would just lay in bed and wait for him to come up the stairs awake every single night. Because, Because you wanted to make sure that you took care of him. Uh, Well, actually, at that point, I think it was self-preservation. I was worried that he was going to do something to the family and Mm. planning out that exit strategy in my head, like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? You know, I don't don't know that that ever actually would have happened, but in a child's mind, that's what you are thinking. You know, you're you're planning that exit route. If you feel like your parent is going to be violent or something bad, really, really bad is going to happen. Uh, you know, you're kind of always in the back of your mind wondering what's going to go, you know, what's happening whenever I get home. I would ride the school bus home and um, wonder what would be waiting there in the evenings. I just remember that sense of dread when I was coming home in the evenings. If, you know, like, are my parents going to be fighting? You know, is he going to be drunk? What's going to be waiting for me when I get home tonight? Mm-hmm. Is he going to do something to my mom? Um, I just never kind of knew what was going on. And I've experienced a lot of anxiety as an adult. And I think that it goes back to that, that whole feeling of when things are going well, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like something bad's going to happen. It can't be good because like life is good. Life is good right now, but I know something is, 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 uh, is brewing in the winds. Yes, exactly. And I know that that is a leftover belief that I carried from my childhood, just, you know, not knowing what was going to happen and living in a volatile environment. And, 
things would be good for a while, like a long time. And then suddenly something would just trigger it and it would, and it would happen again. So, you know, I did a, uh, I did an interview last week with one of the other speakers at our masterminds, Alyssa Nobriga. Mm-hmm. Were you there for her? I was there she... the same day she was there. Yes. Okay. But you didn't hear her. Talk. I did not know. So we were talking about one of the things we were talking about was around the subject of beliefs and you know she she has this ritual that she does every week where she her and her girlfriends they have a belief squashing ritual where they do 1 hour together and they take 30 minutes each and whenever one of them feels like they they're always looking during the week to see like what's the belief that i need to crush and she and i said well what was the last one she said that I have to work hard to make money. And I went, oh, that's interesting. Mm. She said, because it's just a belief because they're, you know, like if you think that you have to kill yourself to make money, then you're going to kill yourself to make money. So true. But you don't have to. And so she goes through this process of like, where did the belief come from? And giving herself, you know, um, grace to accept the fact that it was there, you know, probably to protect her in some way. And she learned it, she picked it up. But it's a really interesting process. And it's funny how a lot of the things that you and I have talked about around this, we don't realize how these traumas get in there. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the people that I've ever talked to about the abuse that I had as a kid, you know, would say, but you seem so normal. Mm -hmm. Like you don't seem so screwed up. Like you have (laughs) no idea the shit that is rolling around this three ring circus in my head that I'm battling that you just don't see. I mean, I've got, you know, 87 self-help books there that I'm hoping (laughs) one of them is going to (laughs) take. I have 88, so I totally get it. (laughs) You know, so as a girl, I'm sure that that type of trauma manifests itself differently. Like, falling in love with mm-hmm. boyfriends fast. Mm-hmm. Or uh, for example, your sisters uh, were married as teens. Um, they wound up being teen moms and uh, duplicating the same abusive relationship. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, as you got older, where you were able to have the the sort of like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty thing where you're looking back and you're like, okay, I see that I, I see this path. I see what happened. I see what they did. I see what my sisters did. They turned into my mother. They turned into the same. They married my father. Like, talk to me about that world. Yeah. So, you know, girls with dad issues mm-hmm. <laughs> tend to want to repeat those patterns and try to resolve it in the relationships. And, uh, you know, I really think that part of the the thing with my sisters is my oldest sister was probably subconsciously maybe trying to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she was pregnant at 17 and um, moved away. And then my middle sister, I think she was pregnant at 19 and married. Uh, And I was still there. Um, I think I was probably about 12 at the time mm-hmm. and was the only child at home with So you my were parents. 12, she was 17, the other one was 19. Yes. Okay, so you're the baby, okay. Yes, and that's when I kind of took over as the sort of adult in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, I felt like there was a power shift that happened at one point. My dad was drunk one night and he was threatening to, for some reason, go to the neighbor's house. And the neighbors were really highly thought of in our community and- I always felt like I was trying to hide from everybody, you know, my my schoolmates and our neighbors, like I didn't want them to know what was going on in our house. And he was threatening to go basically t- 
tell the neighbors off for for no apparent reason. I had no idea no idea why. And I decided to step in front of him for the first time. Like I decided that I was going to stand in front of the door and not let him out, mm-hmm. no matter what. He was not going to humiliate our family. In this front is of at twelve. People. This is at twelve. Mm-hmm. It's around and, the time that I started too, but thirteen. Yes, and um, I knew that stepping in front of him, I was risking either that he would hit me mm-hmm. or that he would get angry enough to get his gun out, or something might happen that mm-hmm. could potentially kill me, but mm-hmm. I was to the point that I didn't care anymore. Like it was such a powerful time in my life. And when I think back on that, that that was the time where I felt like I owned my power for the first time when I stepped in front of him. God, you're freaking me out right now. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but I remember there was a time where I was 13 and um, he was so drunk, like, like couldn't stand up, but I was getting... I had more testosterone than he did Mm. because I was 13 and I was stronger and he was drunker and he was getting older. And I remember knocking him down Mm. because he was coming after me, but it was like stumbling towards me. And I pushed him, it was almost like a feather and I was able to knock him down and he fell over the chair and he sat lying with like, like imagine like I'm knocked over on this chair, but I'm still sitting on the chair, but on the floor. And he sat there, it must've been 30 minutes where he wouldn't get out of the chair, mm. just looking at me with this hatred. And it was in that moment that everything changed. Yes. So you and I had a epiphany together and, and I'm going through the story because I know that there is somebody listening to this right mm-hmm. now that is in the exact same, whether they're a kid or whether they're a, an adult, you know, like I am at 53 years old that still remembers these pivotal moments in our life taking back the power. So after that for you, when you took that back, how did things change? Um, I think from that point forward, and I had the exact same, the exact same situation happen. I pushed him. Mm. I expected him to retaliate. He didn't. I pushed him again and I pushed him a third time. He backed off and he left and stopped. And it was just the most powerful moment. But I think from that point, there was a shift in the family dynamic where I felt like in a sense, I became the adult in the household and my parents were the children. And of course that led to a lot of me being disrespectful toward them, um, realizing, you know, I could talk back to them. I could mm-hmm. I could boss them around. Well, now you were making up for lost time. You're, exactly. picking that, you're picking that power back up. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I became what they labeled, you know, like the difficult teenager toward them. Although I was to the outside world, the perfect teenager. I never drank, I never smoked, I never partied. I didn't have a boyfriend. I was like trying to hold it all together to be the perfect child because I didn't want to cause any issues. And also because I was worried about perceptions. Like I had all this stuff going on at home. I didn't need to draw negative attention to myself because I didn't want that. So- You just said something that just made me think. Do you know that I- have never done drugs in my life. I smoked pot once. Uh, me too. And do you know I didn't have my first sip of alcohol until I was 30? Wow. So this is really interesting. Our parallels are so, like there's so many pivotal things. Crazy. Like when you said that, I have never met anybody that like, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm around 53 years. So I've been around plenty of things where, you know, there's been, you know, people doing drugs here or people drinking, you know, at 16 years old, but I never, ever, ever took a sip of alcohol till 30. And to this day have never done anything more than two or three puffs of a a joint Mm -hmm. when I was like 40. (laughs) 
like, it's just the, like, it's just the weird thing. I wonder if it's, I mean, we can analyze the hell out of this, but I'm wondering if it's just, you know, the control that we just needed control over ourselves. And we saw the lack of control going on in our life or what it did to, and we mm-hmm. became, I think, I think in AA, they call it teetotalers. Right. Do you know right. what I mean? Yes. You know, isn't that interesting? It is interesting. I did, I did start drinking in college, just basically peer pressure type of stuff. Right. But I have always been careful around alcohol, not because I think I would have a problem with it, but because I don't like the sense of loss of control completely. Mm. Yes. And I've never done drugs for the same reason. I don't, I don't like being put under. I don't like being on pain medication. Anything that alters my reality or makes me feel a loss of control, flying. Mm. <laughs> I don't like flying because I feel like I'm not in control of that. You claustrophobic? To an extent, mm-hmm. but I can usually meditate through any situation where I feel claustrophobic. My claustrophobia is insane. I made my wife walk down the top of the the, uh, the Eiffel Tower because mm-hmm. I couldn't get in the elevator to go down. It was that bad. I have, I'm extremely fearful of heights. We went to Santorini this summer and ah. I was completely freaked out. Really? <laughs> yes, because everything's on a cliff. We were driving around on an ATV and then we rented a car and my husband was he was like, what is going on? Because it was just out of control. I was, everywhere we went, I was super fearful of of falling off a cliff somewhere. It is beautiful though. It is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. So, okay. So now, now we've set the stage for the challenge. Let's talk a little bit about some of the solutions. So it, you and I talked about the idea of, I think EMDR is yes. what it stands for, right? Yes. So can you tell me what EMDR is when it came into your life and how it's helped you? So I've been in therapy on and off since I was 18, mm-hmm. which has been life-changing in every possible way. Uh, I haven't been super consistent with it, but uh, recently, just this past year, I decided to go back into therapy again because I felt like there were some things that were recurring with anxiety and limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I've carried around a less than mentality my entire life, like people are better than me. Mm. Uh, And I believe that that's something that was planted in me as a child and had to do with my upbringing for sure. But when I went back into therapy, my therapist said, you know, I really think that you would benefit from EMDR. It's a new kind of therapy. Do your research on it. See what you think. So I am an Enneagram 5 and I research everything. Mm -hmm. Went home, read about it um, and was really convinced that it was something I wanted to try. So I want to interrupt you a little bit because there's some words here that I don't know. And Mm -hmm. I think people listening are going to feel the same way. So I don't know what an Enneagram is. I know it's a personality test, but I don't really understand what it is. And I know that a lot of people are really, really into this. And I get so confused with all these personality tests. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a, this, I'm an explorer. I'm a, you know, there's there's, like, I, I never know which one to go to. So before we get into EMDR, let's talk about the Enneagram. What is it and why does it have meaning to you? So I'm not an expert. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just just throw that out there. Whatever you know. Sure. So the Enneagram is a personality typing kind of like the Myers-Briggs. So you've probably heard of INFJ, introvert. I'm I'm an INFJ uh, and that's a Myers-Briggs typing. And the Enneagram is a little bit different. The, IN, the Myers-Briggs is how the world views you. The Enneagram is how you view the world. So as an Enneagram type five, I am the investigator type of personality. I'm always wanting to research everything and know everything about everything. And I think Some of this is nature and I think some of it is nurture because of the way that I was raised and wanting to be in control. And I feel that the more information that I gather and have about any any situation that I'm heading into, 
the more prepared I'll be to deal with it. Uh, so yeah, there are plenty of free tests online. If you're curious about the Enneagram, I feel that it has been a more comprehensive personality test for me. And when I read my description the first time, I was bawling. Like I felt It was just seen. spot on. Yes. And it really just validated so many things about the way I view the world. And it's it's been very eye-opening and life-changing. And, and then I, of course, had my whole family do it. Mm. My kids, my husband, and we are relating better because of it. I understand them better. My husband's an Enneagram 7, which is just like, I forget what the, his actual title of his type is, but he is spontaneous and fun and loves to just, he's all about fun, honestly, which is completely opposite of me and makes so much sense. Like we're the perfect fit for each other. I balance him, he balances me and we meet somewhere in the middle. Does that make you frustrated and attracted all at the same time? Yes. (laughs) So there's definitely positives and negatives to each and every personality type. But I think understanding it now makes me less frustrated. So I can... I say, oh, okay, that that makes sense. It's totally his personality type. And I am honoring that a little bit more so than being, you know, resentful sometimes of the fact that he's so carefree and so happy-go-lucky. And I was feeling like, well, I have to overcompensate for that, but I really don't because I feel like we just balance each other out now. And understanding that was really what made the difference. All right, before we get into EMDR more, there's a couple of things that you said that I wanted I want to touch on. I did an interview with um, Lori Harder. Yes. And she was asking me some questions and it was, a, a, I share, not probably to your extent, the level of research, but I want to know everything about everything before I'm doing anything. Like, I'm just like, I'm all in. And I, I want to be scheduled. I want to be planned. I want to be predictable. Like, I want to control it. And so Lori said to me, well, do you leave room for the magic to happen? I said, as long as I know it's going to be at 8.30, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the question I have for you is, do you think that, I know what the benefit is of being prepared and researched and thoughtful, but in what ways do you think that that has hindered you in your life in not being more spontaneous and more open to risk and being more, you know, we'll see what happens. You know what I mean? Like in what way has that affected you? Uh, I think that I haven't prioritized fun in my life. And honestly, over the past year, I've realized the importance of doing that, that Mm -hmm. life can't always be about accomplishment or achievement or, you know, pushing for something or striving for something. You have to leave room for fun too, because what's the point of doing all this stuff if you're not able to just relax and enjoy it Mm -hmm. once in a while. So really just placing that priority and saying, fun is as important as accomplishment. Fun is in itself an accomplishment and and recognizing that and allowing myself to just really create space for it. This is is so interesting because people listening to this are going to be very confused about what I'm about to say because people who follow me understand and know that, you know, I've got this mastermind where we travel around the world. We're spraying champagne on each other in Saint-Tropez, you know? <laughs> like it's, it would sound like I'm the fun guy. The only reason why that's in place is because I can't do it. Mm. So I have had to create 
an organized plan to ensure that I have the fun because otherwise left to my own devices, I just won't do it. Mm-hmm. We won't get too deep into this today, but there is a new planner that I've been playing around with that um, our mutual friend Lewis House is on the board of directors for. It's called Evo. I'll show it to you before you leave. And it's, it's a planner based around personality types. So I was in Lake Como with uh, three or four friends a couple of weeks ago, and they all, uh, they all had different planners. It looked the same on the outside, but the guts of it was completely different. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are they all different? They said, because the planner is based around your, per- you take this personality test, based around your personality test, mm-hmm. which we can get into another time. But <laughs> the one at the top, the, the thing at the top of the planner that you have to fill out each day is one is what was, what's your most important task? Okay, that makes sense. We want to make sure that we prioritize that. But beneath that is what are you doing today for fun? Do you know I sit here in the morning for 15 minutes and I stare at the wall drooling going like, I don't know what the hell to put in. Like I am living at the freaking beach. Okay. (laughs) I got a bicycle in my driveway. I'm in 70 degrees and sunny, perfect weather. Like volleyball is 10 seconds. Surfing is out the door. And I am sitting here trying to figure out what to do for fun. Mm -hmm. It's not, it does not come natural to me. So for you, like when you think about having fun, what are some things that you like to do now for fun? You got a fun list. By the way, by the way, I don't know if this counts. If you have to pull your phone out to go, I'm going to have fun at eight (laughs) 15. That is so funny. Yes. So and that I, the first thing I do is pull my phone out because I do, I have a fun list. And if I had to sit and think about it every morning, I would struggle too. And that's why I put things on this list whenever I think about them or whenever I see something or if we do something fun together as a family, I'll put it in my notes on my phone okay, because it's something it. I can refer back to. I'm trying to find it right now. I have okay. so many lists on my phone. All right. All right. I'll give you I'll give you a little time to think about <laughs> okay. it. Okay. So, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, creating creating fun for my life. And by the way, people who are laughing right now, I know that there are some of you type A entrepreneurs that are out there that are like, you try it. You come up every single day and say, "For today, I'm going to do this for fun." The other thing while you're looking for your fun list is on this planner. It says, I will create order and balance in my life today by doing. So when you're a a type A person, you're like, you're driven, fun is difficult to have, but creating balance in your life is tough too. Mm -hmm. So I've got a five-year-old that's going to walk in that door at 2.59 this afternoon, and she's going to want to play with daddy. And daddy is going to have to figure out do I prioritize playing with her or building my empire? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so I've had to figure out to create order and balance in my life today for just for me, because this is how this is the season of life that I'm in. I'm going to stop work at three o'clock. Mm-hmm. It means I get up a little earlier, but I'm going to stop work at three o'clock. It is really, really difficult for me to pull the plug at three o'clock and sit on the floor and play LOL dolls mm-hmm. because I want to prioritize something else above that. So tell me what's on your fun list. Do you have it in front of you? I do. All right. Okay. So I jot them down as I go. Yeah. All right. So going to see a hip hop dance troupe. 
Okay. That, hip, that, hip, that one just completely threw you for, for a loop, didn't it? Where did that one come from? So I went with my sister and her husband. My husband and I went last year and we had an absolute blast. We were dancing and having a fun time. I mean, it was just something totally outside of mm-hmm. my personality yeah. and completely out of my comfort zone. So we did that before. It was a blast. We're planning on doing it again <laughs> for my sister's birthday in a couple okay. of weeks. So All right. that's, Good. that's fun. Yeah. Uh, going roller skating. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things are going to be physical activities. Yep. Um, going to a comedy show. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to a musical, lectures, talks, uh, museum. I am a very artsy person. So mm-hmm. those artsy things. Artsy in what way? I love art. I love history. Like my favorite places that we travel to are places like Rome, where I, I was can get. Say you would love Florence. Oh my gosh! And Florence, yeah. we've yeah, yeah, we did Florence last year. So anything where I can get my art and history fix. Okay. Um, tennis. My husband and I are taking tennis lessons together. Uh-huh. Piano. I just started piano lessons again after thirty-two years. So you never played in thirty-two years. You never played, but when you were a kid, you were you you, yes. you could play. I could play a little. I'm kind of getting to the point in my lessons where I'm passing where I was as a kid, which uh-huh. is exciting. Yeah. And it's it's coming back to me. Learning Spanish. Uh-huh. I've I had a minor in Spanish in college, so I've wanted to be fluent. So that's something that a lot of these are based around learning too. Yeah. Doing yoga, which is something I don't make time for and wish I did. Uh, I put acting on this list, interestingly. Why? Uh, because it's something I do want to get back to. I want to do it in a way this time though that is not success-based. I want to do it purely for the art. My God, this is so good. I went to, uh, I went to Ibiza and I was, I was at a point in my life where I was just, I was bored. Like I needed something. Mm-hmm. And I went to Ibiza and I saw all these DJs that were playing around. And it was a big night. I don't know if you know much about DJs, but they have um, like the, the biggest of the biggest of the biggest were there every night. Right. And so I got back and I was like, I'm going to be a DJ. I want to learn how to DJ. So I hired a guy in a in one of the biggest clubs in Atlanta, which is one of the top clubs in America, to come to the house and train me. So I bought $10,000 worth of equipment, right? And he came every week. He looked at me like I was nuts because at the time I was about 46, 47 years old. He's like, what are you, what are you doing? I'm like, I just, I love it. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I went from learning to doing it professionally and then started touring around the country because I couldn't just do it for fun. Yeah. I had to do it with an end to make money yes. and then go into, and then guess what happened? I, it lost its charm because it became work. Yes. So I love how you're framing this to be able to do it purely for fun. Mm-hmm. Not to be on a soap opera. Right. Not to be on a hip hop dance show. Exactly. But to actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you struggle with too? It is absolutely something I struggle with. And that it's exactly why I quit acting. It was soul sucking. I booked 33 commercials the last year that I acted, which was in 2012. And I just couldn't bring myself to do another audition. It was, there was no fun in it. There was nothing left in it for me anymore. And when I think about acting now, I think about what was the most fun thing that I did? I used to act in murder mysteries, in murder mystery dinner theater. Why did you like that? I loved it because I was in character the whole time. It was very interactive. We got to use improv skills and it just was fun, like pure Mm. fun and exhilarating. And when I got at the end of the performance, like there was no better feeling. And I did not have that on any of the paid gigs. I think I got paid maybe like 150 bucks for doing a dinner theater show, but any of the bigger paying gigs that I did and the national commercials and things like that, I never walked away with that same feeling. So I want to get back to that. And that's 
that's the goal is to just do it purely for the pleasure and for the fun of doing it. If you had to plug fun in, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to f- plug fun in every single day, do you feel like you could do it? Small mm. or big? I do because do. Uh, yes, I do because there. Are, I think fun for me, and I define this differently than my husband does. He's he's always saying, "What is fun to you? What do you define as fun? Like, what do you just purely, truly enjoy?" And for me, it's different than him. Completely different. For me, it could be just like being in a really deep conversation with someone, mm-hmm. something really meaningful, or hearing an amazing lecture, or just getting out in nature with our dogs and hiking in the woods somewhere. That to me is fun. So I think it really has to do with how you define it. It doesn't have to be going up in a hot air balloon or, you know, some kind of adventure. It can be something as simple as sitting on the porch swing with a glass of wine at the end of the day and having a deep, meaningful conversation with my husband. That to me is more about fulfillment. And I define that as fun. I love that. You actually gave me some great ideas to do. All right, let's hit, uh, let's wrap up with EM, uh, let's wrap up the EMDR uh, portion of this. So you're obviously a different person now having gone through what you went through with therapy. Mm -hmm. How often do you go? I'll link up the Enneagram so people can take the Enneagram, learn more about it. How often do you go and why did your therapist recommend this type of therapy for you versus just traditional therapy? So I've been doing behavioral and cognitive therapy for years and I feel like it's brought me about 80% of the way Uh of where I want to be. The other 20% is the part that we were having issues kind of, I felt like I was hitting the ceiling on therapy. So when my therapist recommended trying EMDR, she said, I think this is really the thing that's going to kind of break through the barriers for you. Uh, So just to briefly explain what it is, it is eye movement desensitization therapy. So when you're sleeping at night and you're having REM sleep, you are processing the day's events. Normal events get processed normally by your brain and categorized and stored away in your memories. Traumatic events don't process in the same way. That's why when you recall a traumatic event years later, you still have that visceral response and those memories feel like it was yesterday and you feel like you're back in that moment again because your brain has never fully processed that memory and it's still there and really fresh. Through EMDR, you recall it through with your therapist guiding you as you're watching a light move back and forth. So your eyes are tracking the light. There are a few different ways they can do it. This is the way that I do it. And you're holding two sensors in your hands and they buzz intermittently back and forth. So this is activating the left and right sides of your brain while you're doing this therapy. So it's mimicking the state that you get into in REM sleep. So as you're recalling the memory and working through it, your brain is then able to take that and start processing it and breaking it down properly. And the first few times I went, I'm not going to lie, I'm a skeptic. I'm always a skeptic about everything entering into it. And I was thinking, this is worth a try. We'll see. I'm always I'm up to try anything. But the funny thing about it is that after about two sessions, I, I don't even want to say two sessions. I think after the first session, a few days later, I was recalling the memory and the trigger. And instead of it having a response, and this is the funny thing that my therapist told me was going to happen, I thought back on the memory and I just felt really neutral. And I thought, hmm, (laughs) it just, it didn't affect me in that same way. The button was for the first time dulled. Yes, completely dulled. I didn't, it, it was like recalling any other normal memory in my life. 
And so, you know, you start somewhere. The funny thing about EMDR is that you think that the trauma that you start with is the original trauma, but it's generally something way less significant, if that makes sense. Give me an example. So I went into it thinking that, you know, some of the things that had happened with my dad and the the bigger traumatic experiences were the things that were shaping my belief system or were hindering me or, you know, creating some issues in my life now. But I realized that it was, you know, more kind of insidious and less obvious that it was more of a belief system that was implanted in me from a really young age about people being better than us and better, like our family, being better than our family. And that was the thing that was hindering me more than anything, was just getting to the root of where did this limiting belief come from? And, you know, when was this first implanted in me? And how did this happen? And it was really my mother who always repeated this all constantly as we were growing up. Like her brother was very successful and he had money and he had like the perfect family. And she would constantly compare us and say, oh, they're better than us, or he's better than us, or he thinks he's better than us. Or, you know, she carried this limiting belief with her. So she placed that on us. God, you fr- I'm getting chills. You're freaking me out right now because it's exactly <laughs> what I went through in a very similar way. And I had an awareness with somebody recently around the same subject. And I'll do the best I can to put it into words. But I remember... Because my parents didn't even graduate high school, I remember the insecurity and inadequacy that they that my dad particularly felt around it. So whenever somebody was super successful or super educated, it was an attack that he had on their character in a very strange way. But I started to pick up the pieces pretty quickly and I knew who he was going to go after metaphorically when somebody was smarter than him. And there was one particular instance where I remember that there was a guy who graduated one of the Ivy League schools and he was an English professor and he was over the house one night because he was with a friend of a friend because there's no English professor that would ever come to my house. (laughs) But this night he did. And I can remember hearing my father screaming to my mother about the arrogance that he had. Mm. And so I have found myself trying to deliberately dumb myself down if I'm around somebody that is super successful. Mm -hmm. Because I learned at a very young age that if I wanted his love, that I could not be one of them. Mm -hmm. I could not be arrogant. I could not be too successful because he wouldn't like that. And I learned to, to stay small. So I still bump up against that now in my life where I want to grow, but there's like this governor that's on my head where I feel like I have to be really careful that somebody doesn't view me as that person. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you, it sounds like with EMDR that it was more of a philosophical thing that you came away with Mm -hmm. about, you know, not being like your mother's brother Mm -hmm. or, or him being better than you guys 
rather than the abusive situation with your dad and alcoholism and, you know, the gun, et cetera. Is that right? Yeah. So I think that the the traumatic situations with the gun and, and, and those types of things affected me with my anxiety, for sure. But I think that the bigger issues that were limiting me were the belief system of, it affected me in two ways. Number one, feeling like everyone's better than you all the time. So you feel like I don't belong here. And number two, what you just des- described is almost hiding success from people because you want to fit in. So mm-hmm. it's a matter of, I don't fit in with these people because they're better than me. And I don't fit in with these people because I have to hide from hide success from them. So never truly feeling like I belonged anywhere. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to own success. Mm-hmm. Because owning success for me melt, felt like I'm, I'm better than you. Yes. And he drilled it in my head, not in a good way. He drilled it in my head. But, but even as a kid, it was transparent enough. To, I, it was, I, I even understood back then that he was just jealous mm-hmm. or that he was uncomfortable around it or he felt inadequate around it. But it still worked. <laughs> it's still in there. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay, so EMDR f- is definitely falling a little bit into the woo-woo category for me, which mm-hmm. is good. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm open to all of it. But I, li- I like it because it seems scientific. It doesn't seem, you know, where we're having a conversation that's just going to shift something. Right. It, we're like interrupting a physical neurological pattern and trying to rewire the brain to process it better. Is that yeah, right? That's exactly why it appealed to me. Whenever I did the research, I'm like, this is research-based. You know, it is absolutely changing the way your brain is functioning and how it's dealing with a memory that's that's lodged there. And so it totally makes sense to me. And I'm not necessarily a woo-woo type of person, mm-hmm. but I'm becoming more open to it. I had Reiki for the first time a oh, few you weeks did. ago. I did. Yeah. Did, were they just like really powerful. just over your uh over your body, kind of like shooting energy yes, into it? Yes. Did you did you crazy. feel anything? I did, did. I did, yes. I felt the the minute she placed her hand on my back, I felt electricity moving through it. And I just went into it with a very open mind, but it was really powerful. And everything that she said was one hundred percent spot on. So Wow, this is very, this is very LA. I'm I'm actually doing a podcast talking about Reiki now. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, get your pretty on and who it's for specifically. And maybe you maybe we can do this by maybe you can kind of place me on the morning that you uh, you woke up and you were determined, as you uh, as we now understand how you think, to make a plan for your day that included some pretty time. What was pretty time for you. <laughs> and why did you decide that you needed to have some pretty time? So back in my corporate America days, I got the opportunity to work from home, which was like a super blessing. I was excited. I was finally able to be with my kids more often, but I would wake up in the morning, throw on my yoga pants and get stuff done and never get ready. Like I was not putting on makeup. I wasn't fixing my hair. And after 14 years of corporate America, waking up every morning, putting on the pencil skirt and the blouse and the high heels and fixing my hair and putting on makeup, you know, that was one of my favorite parts of the job was getting dressed for the day and getting ready. And I didn't have that anymore. I no longer had that accountability built in to get ready. Mm-hmm. And at first it was great. But what started to happen was it snowballed into me starting to lose motivation. I wasn't really working out anymore. The house was getting messier, despite the fact that I was home more often. I wasn't cooking healthy meals. I mean, it was just like this whole snowball effect of things that were happening. 
And I call it my yoga pants rut, but honestly, it was more like a full-fledged depression that I was experiencing. Uh, so I knew that I had to do something tangible. And the only thing I could figure out was to get dressed again. So I woke up one morning, hour before everybody else, made a plan for my day, decided I was actually going to work out, <laughs> give my yoga pants a purpose, and then get showered and dressed and ready for the day. So I did that on that first day. And when I went to pick up my daughter from school, she looked at me, she got in the car. She's like, mommy, what happened to you? <laughs> and I said, what? And she said, you look pretty today. Mm. So I think, you know, honestly, that was the thing for me. It wasn't enough. And as moms, we experience this. It's not enough for us to feel bad, to want to make a change. Sometimes we have to have our families and realize that it's affecting them. Have them say something to us that just really kind of drives that point home. And that for me was a turning point where I realized that I wasn't really setting a good example and that this wasn't heading in a good direction. And in order to be a better mom and wife and, you know, employee at the time in corporate America, it required me to take better care of myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things I realized was that I had nothing to wear. I had all the clothes from my corporate past life and I was reaching for yoga pants because I didn't have any other clothes to wear that suited this new lifestyle. So I decided to start my blog, Get Your Pretty On, to chronicle the journey, to teach myself how to dress for a stay-at-home mom or work-from-home mom life. And to my surprise, it caught on organically. It was not a business idea. It was just something I was doing creatively as an outlet and to share what I was learning. But there were so many other moms in that same situation that were not finding resources that suited their lifestyle. And so it grew pretty quickly into you know, a popular blog, although I was not making any money at the time. That came later on down the road whenever I started my membership program, which I teach women how to create capsule wardrobes and tell them what to wear every season and what to go out and buy and how to pair it up. What was that word, capsule? A capsule wardrobe. What's a capsule wardrobe? So a capsule wardrobe is basically a set of pieces that mix and match with each other. So think about granimals when you were a kid. It's like granimals for first adults. Thing, first, thing I, first thing I thought of. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I want to We only get two lions together. Okay, yes, got it. exactly. So that's exactly what a capsule wardrobe Wardrobe is. So I build capsule wardrobes every season. I tell women what closet staples to have that they can wear year round. Yeah. And then I tell them which trends to go out and add to those closet staples. And then I show them 31 different ways to mix and match the pieces on the list to create outfits. All right. So walk me through it. So I'm a, I'm a girl, I wake up, a lot of people now are working from home mm -hmm. and they're in that same situation or they have babies and, you know, they decided to take a few years off. You know, I, I walk to that school behind you every morning and, I, you know, I, I'm one of the few dads with all the, with all the moms in yoga pants. Mm -hmm. And I see every single one of them there. And I've been looking at it since I heard you speak about it. And, you know, so I, I want to like tap them on the shoulder and ask them if they're getting their pretty on, but that's another conversation. <laughs> so they're, they're in their yoga pants and they come home and they're doing their, you know, their mom stuff. But they're at a point in their life now where they're, they're like, you know, I just feel like I want to get my pretty on. So like, what is it? Like, walk me through it. Does, does, does the, does the girl like open up a brochure in the morning and she's got a, a flip chart and she, she goes, I, I need one of those today. And <laughs> one of those today, is it like a, like a Chinese menu where there's column A and column B? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> so what it looks like is we have a membership site and whenever you sign up for any of my capsule wardrobes, you get access to that. And inside there, you have everything that you need to build your capsule. So first off, you're going to get a shopping list with that shopping list. I recommend that women shop their closets first because most of us have pieces 
pieces in our closets already that we're not utilizing, that we love, but maybe are just buried and we're not even using them. So they go through the list and they check off anything that they already have. Then they're armed with that list to go and fill in the blanks on it. So when you walk into the store, you're not overwhelmed. You're shopping with a purpose. You know exactly what you need. I also have a recommended items catalog within the membership site so they can shop online and retailers everywhere from you know, target to whatever the higher end um, you want to shop at. You're going to find a link in there and we cover everyone from petites to plus sizes. So there's something for everybody. Mm -hmm. So the way that the program is built, it's around outfit formulas. So these outfit formulas work for every age, every body type, every budget, doesn't matter. It's inclusive. And as long as you follow the formula, your outfit is going to look great. So every day for 31 days, you get an email or you can log into the membership site to view the outfit of the day. And that outfit formula is going to come through the night before. So you'll already have your pieces that you went out and bought and you can put the outfit together that morning. So basically it ends decision fatigue. You already know you have the pieces and this is the combination that you're going to create from it. Then we have a Facebook community, which is honestly the best part of the entire thing. So the women in this community post their outfits, their shopping tips. There's every single body type that you can imagine represented in this group. We have thousands of women in here and they're all just sharing advice with each other. They post their outfits. They post their different versions of them. If they want to just do the very literal version of an outfit, they can do that, like exact copy of what I've given them for the prompt. But a lot of the women take it to the next level and they do some fun accessories or they find ways to express their personalities through the outfit. Okay, God, there's so many roads I can go down here. You've been to Florence, you've been to Rome. When you're in places like Italy and you see that it just seems to kind of come natural to these, you know, like, you know, I was walking down the street of Rome and I'm, I'm I, you know, I looked at this guy and he's like, he just had it together. Mm. Like, you know, he's got like the man jewelry and I don't know, neckerchief. I don't know what he had, but it was <laughs> great. So I came home and I, I, I took a, I snuck a picture of him. My wife is like, that's creepy, but I snuck a picture of him and I went home. I was like, I'm going to do this. Right. So I come home, I look like an Oompa Loompa. I mean, it was like, I look like one of the lollipop kids in The Wizard of Oz. Like I couldn't, I, I, I missed the mark. I couldn't <laughs> do it and I was committed. And so this last trip in Italy, I went home and I, got, I, I bought custom shirts. I spent too much money and I come back and I just, it's like I, I, I'm, I'm in the closet and I'm just staring, looking around going, I don't, and I just put a black t-shirt on because <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. So mm -hmm. when you said, you said like de decision fatigue and outfit formula. Mm -hmm. If I had a Geranimals chart where I can look up and go pick that and that, Oh, you know, you're making me think of something. In a Tony Robbins seminar I went to a couple of years ago, like 10 years ago, one of the things that he was talking about uh, time management, and one of the things he does is because he's always on the road, he takes at that time Polaroids of outfits that he loves mm -hmm. and he numbered them. Yes. And so he says to his assistant, I'm going to be in Florida this week. I need a, a, I need a number nine, a number 12 and a number 18. Mm -hmm. And she throws the outfit. So, I mean, I don't want to tell you how to run your business here, but I feel like there's like there's a brand for guys because I think we're we're like we, we may not be having the wearing the yoga pants in the house 
needing our pretty on thing. Mm-hmm. But we have a different problem, which is a lot of us now where work is so dressed down that you can kind of wear anything you want to work for the most part, unless you're in like some major, you know, like Manhattan or something where right. it's like a different environment. But a lot of the times, you know, we're either working from home or, you know, we can wear whatever we want to work. Nobody cares as long as we get the production done. But at the same time, we want to feel and look good and don't want to wear dockers. Do you right. know what I mean? Yes, totally. So like I, you know, I just, I don't know. Maybe I could be a poster child. Well, in 2020, we are going to roll out an evergreen menswear capsule. Well, so. there you go. <laughs> so I was ahead of the curve here. Yeah. So the funny thing is we've, I did one in the past and we've had so many women who have come to me and said, I need to take my husband shopping. I have no idea where to start. Please yeah. help me. Yeah. We like how your husband dresses and you know, they see him on social media. Yeah. You know, tell us what to go out and buy. So we are definitely going to do that. It's on the agenda. It's going to happen in 2020. Uh, and I, I totally get it. Like the outfit formula thing, Tony Robbins is spot on. I tell women, you find an outfit you like, take a selfie or take a flat lay image, like lay the pieces out on your bed, take a picture on your phone and keep them in a folder because that's going to make getting dressed. You don't have to do my program, but that's going to make getting dressed easier for you because you're going to refer back to those outfits and you're going to always know that you have something in your closet that you can wear at a moment's notice, you're going to be ready to go. Well, you know the 80-20 rule, right? Are you familiar with that concept? Yes. That would, okay, so it, that applies to clothing too. 20, sure. 20% of your closet is what you wear. Right. 80% of it you don't. Exactly. And, it, and so, but I, when I'm thinking about it, when I wake up in the morning and I run in there, I'm rushed. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I've got all these different things I have to do. So I'm just like, I don't know. And I just grab it. And so there's no thought about it because of decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. I in, I innately know I don't have time. So if I have to sit here and figure out what to wear, screw it. Right. I'm just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But if I have the capsule and I can look at it, it eliminates the decision fatigue and I can just go, oh, that'll work. Right. I can wear this, this, and this. Okay. And that's so, why we do a printable calendar. There's a calendar in there with every day of the week and you can put it in your closet if you want to. You can keep it on your phone, but we have... Tons of printables too that women can refer back to. But what's on the calendar? Are the outfits on the calendar? Yes, the outfits are on the calendar. Oh, now I understand it even better. Okay, this is why this is taken off the way it's taken off. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, I love it. Okay, wow, time is flying. Okay, before I get into the fulfillment parts, there's a couple of things I wanna talk to you about. The first one is, did I read right that you just got your first book deal? Yes. Tell me about that. Congratulations. Thank you. I did not know about that. Yes. Yes. So just in September, uh, it took nine months, but yeah. we, yes, I am going to release the handbook of outfit formulas oh. in early 2021. I have until next June to finish it, but this will be outfit formulas by season that are classic mix and match ideas that are not going to go out of style. You can safely go out and buy the pieces that create these capsule wardrobes and you're gonna be able to wear them year round. So I'm also gonna give some advice about choosing pieces that fit and flatter your body the best, You know, really just exploring style with your personality and figuring out, are you more boho? Are you more modern, edgy, classic, traditional? Whatever the case may be, I'm gonna teach you how to accessorize properly, uh, but it's just gonna be a, a version of everything that I've done at Get Your Pretty On with, of course, the confidence factor underlying everything, um, but it's gonna be a beautiful gift book also. Uh, so it, it'll be pretty. You can put it on your coffee table. Well, you, you're going to get pretty on with your book too. Yes, this I am. This is so good. <laughs> you know, I was, I was with, I don't know how this relates to this conversation, but I think, I think there's something to it. Maybe you can give me your thoughts on it. 
I was with our mutual friend, Lori Harder, in France. And one of the things I did for our mastermind was I rented a whole host of vintage cars and we went through the French Riviera. Mm -hmm. And um, beforehand, I had them all pick the car that they wanted. And and, uh, her husband, Chris, is a car guy. And so he picked like, I think it was like a 1940s Porsche. I'll show you a picture. I saw them. Oh, you saw, did you see it? <laughs> yes. Okay. So that day, while we were while we were out there, we went and we had lunch at this castle, right? And Lori is, if you remember the picture, she had this big hat mm-hmm. on, right? And this flowy like dress. Beautiful. Like red lipstick, like, re- like redder than red lipsticks, right? Lipstick. And, you know, I'm looking at her, I'm like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, did did you fly with somebody from LA to do this in the morning? Like, like, how did you do this? And she said, you know, I create a character. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I just, I think about what the day is going to be for me. And I'm here, I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be in an old car. I'm going to be in the South of France in the summer in a convertible And so I dream a story up in my mind of who this character is. And she's got red lipstick and she has a floppy hat Mm. and I just create it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. She's like, yeah. And I said, why did you do that? She said, because if I didn't do it that way and I dressed in a certain way, I felt that I'd walk into the room and I wanted to shrink. And I said, Mm -hmm. why? She said, because when I was myself and I was wearing the lipstick or whatever, it felt, I felt like other women were looking at me and they were judging me. And who does she think she is to come, you know, dressed up like that. But when I went, all in on the character. I was like, oh, this is who I am today. Mm. I'm Sophia Loren in Italy, do you know, wow. or whatever. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. That's so cool. Isn't there, <laughs> I love isn't that. there something interesting about that? that and if really you look is. at the photos, it's exactly- She embodies she that. She embodied totally, it. Totally, yeah. She's like, oh, I'm all in. She owned it. I own it. I am all in with yeah. it. And she said it felt so good. Mm. So I don't know. I just felt like there was something that's in, so, in that for yeah, you. Yeah, that's really cool. I love it. All right, we're going to move into the rapid. We're going to move into the art of fulfillment before we go into the rapid fire round, and we are going to talk about some things that you can do, some things that you do perhaps to uh, improve your life. What is a new behavior or belief in you know it could be in the last week or months, years even that has significantly improved the quality of your life? Uh, we already touched on this in EMDR, but you know, just really digging into that, I felt like I was fundamentally flawed through most of my life. And mm-hmm. I realized that that affected a lot of my decisions um, negatively and um, just really breaking through that and realizing, you know, something that Brene Brown says about the difference between fitting in and belonging. And mm. I found that belonging for me means being who I authentically am with everybody. And that requires vulnerability, which is scary because, you know, I've spent most of my life putting up the guards in the walls to keep people from seeing the real me. And just allowing that to come down is where real connection has happened. And my relationships have gotten better. And I feel like, you know, just even the way the GYPO community has responded to me just being really truly me has been so affirming and validating and has really just been completely life-changing honestly for those following along the gypo community is the get your pretty on community yes okay got it are there any positions or opinions in the last few years or it could be way back 
that you've changed your mind substantially on, um, where you're like, you know, I used to feel this way, but I don't feel that way anymore. Hmm. Yes. Uh, so positions, I, I don't know about positions, but I used to really want to micromanage everything. And realizing this has just, you know, really revolutionized not only my business life, but my personal life that if I let go and get out of the way, oftentimes I can allow other people to step in and do things even better than what I thought I could do. And it's it's everything from planning vacations. Like we are, we love traveling. We go on at least two big trips per year. I used to just plan our itineraries out to the second. And now we went to Australia earlier this year. I didn't, we loosely had things that we knew we wanted to do on the list, but just kind of let things flow. Mm-hmm. And it was the first vacation where I just really was in the moment. And it wasn't like, oh, we've got to be here and we have to do this and we've got to see this and we've got to do that. We just allowed it to happen more organically. And it was just such a different experience. And I feel like that's just been an evolution personally and in my business too, where I've been able to let go of things and allow them to happen. And everything's okay. The world doesn't end if I'm not (laughs) micromanaging it. (laughs) It keeps spinning. It does. With every new level comes a new devil. Oh, yes. What are you currently struggling with? Hmm. The new devil right now, I think, is thinking, hmm, there are two things that come to mind. Number one is with Get Your Pretty On, I've gone very deep, but I haven't gone very wide. And if you look at my social media followings, it's not huge. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is I intentionally chose a different path when I went down into the blogging journey where I wasn't always pushing things for people to buy. It was more about shopping with intention. And I had a blogger friend tell me early on that I was never going to make it. She's like, if you're not posting new stuff every day or like the Nordstrom anniversary sales or your Amazon hauls or whatever, no one's going to follow you. They're Mm -hmm. not going to be interested in that. They don't want to wear the same things or see you wearing the same things over and over again. Well, in a way she was right because she blew past me and Mm -hmm. you know, she's like a million followers now and that's fine. That was her business model, but mine went deeper and I've taught women to shop with intention and brought in this confidence aspect. And it's not about consumerism or buying something to make you contented. It's about something much deeper than that. So on one hand, I'm extremely happy and satisfied with that. But on the other hand, the ego is there saying, but you didn't have that explosive growth, or maybe you're not one of the cool girls or, you know, all the things that you tell yourself when that happens. So I do think that there's a space for get your pretty on to go wider and, um, and I think that that's a challenge for me right now is like, how do we take this to the next level? How do we go bigger with it? Have you read the book Story Brands? I have, yes. Mm-hmm. When was yes. the last time you went through the, the uh, framework? Oh, it's probably been about two years, Pick I think. Yeah, it'll be we're a, due for it'll it be a completely different book. Uh, yeah, that's, that's amazing advice, actually. I think it's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because, because now, now who you're going to be talking to is a bigger collective, Yes. as opposed to a deeper collective mm-hmm. and you'll go, it, it'll, it's, it's going to be good. Okay. All right. Um, we're going to hit our rapid fire round answer as quickly or as slowly as you want to. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Listening hundred percent. You're a great listener. Yes. What's, what's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Mm. Death. Me too. <laughs> Me too. My God, we are the same. We're, we are we're, the, the, same we're the same girl. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? 
ideas. I always have just, I wake up at three o'clock. I woke up at three o'clock this morning, like with ideas popping off. That's my, my thinking time. Yeah. Do you pump the ideas into a, um, a notepad? I don't. I have a phonetics. This is crazy. I remember the first letter of each idea. And that's what I, when I wake up in the morning, then I go run to my notebook. Like it'll be like, A is for, um, we're going to do annual memberships this way this year or whatever. Like I have these letters in my head. But aren't you rolling around the letters in your head? Like yes, be- the rest of the night. Between 3 a.m. and whatever time you wake up? 100%. Okay, we need a, we need a better system. <laughs> we do. Um, what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? How are you? How are you feeling? And my husband asked me that, but he's about the only person I think, I think it goes back to that listening thing. I'm such a good listener that people are used to me being in that role and I don't ask for help often enough. So I want people to come to me and say, how are you, like, how are you really feeling? Uh-huh. And he knows to do that, which is amazing and and feels so great. But I wish that more people in my That's sphere good. knew that. That's a good one. Um, what's one thing you want to get better at? Oh, I want to say piano, but that seems so surface. But I do, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. And Spanish. Cool. I want to be able to fluent, be fluent. Cool. Yeah. The stuff that you, the stuff that you're working on in your fun list. Yes. What book have you reread or re-listened to the most? Hmm. I reread Matthew Kelly's Rhythm of Life every year, right after the holidays. It's one of those books that's just kind of like soothing balm to the soul, and it re it connects me with my purpose, which I think is becoming a better version of myself every day. Honestly. Mm. And um, it just brings peace to me and resets my everything for the year. I love that. Never even heard of it. What's one thing you own that you should probably throw out, but you never will? <laughs> oh gosh, I throw things out so much. My God, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a throw outer. Yeah. My wife said you'd throw, you'd throw the walls out if, if, you, if you could lift them. Yeah, I guess I, I'm going to say books, but mm-hmm. I love my books. I know. But they're up in the attic in a box and I'm never going to pull them back out again. I just can't. All right, we're going to, last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? <laughs> hmm. So would you try EMDR? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I will. It's not a question of me being open to it. It's a question of me putting it on the list and prioritizing it to yes. make it happen. And it is, I've got a little bit, of a belief system that there's always going to be somebody who's better at it. Mm-hmm. So like if I get the one person who's like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm like, well, what if, what if Bobby down the road, the therapist does EMDR better? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a question of like finding the right one. I'm giving you excuses now. I know. Yes, you are. Yeah, because it's not about finding the right one. Every therapist is going to guide you in the same way. So it's one oh. of those things where it's not really going to make a huge difference which therapist you choose yeah, because the process is basically the same. And it's a lot of it is self-guided. The therapist will give you some instruction as you go through it, but don't let that be a limiting factor. In All right. It. I will start the EMDR search today. Awesome. I'm going to hold you accountable. <laughs> uh, you got it. <laughs> Any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, check out Get Your Pretty On. Get, get your pretty on.com, right? Yes, All right, we'll link it up in the show notes. Thank did, you. Did we do it? We did it. We did it. Awesome. All right, it was awesome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game 
or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.
sitting on the porch swing with a glass of wine at the end of the day and having a deep, meaningful conversation with my husband. That, to me, is more about fulfillment, and I define that as fun.